Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. Lord, you are a good God and you are so gracious and kind and merciful and good in all that you do, Lord. Father, we look to you at this time, Lord, for I am but a man. And I trust in you and you alone, Lord, that your word be proclaimed, that your son be exalted, that your truth penetrate our hearts today, Lord, that we may see how gracious you truly are and that we may be compelled to love you and to serve you as you ought to be served, Lord. Father, uh, we entrust this time to you and uh, may your will be done and may your name be glorified and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So often in the Christian journey as a pilgrim here on earth, on this narrow path, we find ourselves in difficult times, being discouraged and often in the minority, labelled with all kinds of uh, nasty and unreasonable labels and often we have much pressure from the world around us to forsake that narrow path and to conform to the norm and to indulge in the self-gratifying pleasures that this godless world offers and adores so passionately. These temporary things that are found on the Broadway to destruction call out our names and demand our attention, offering us satisfaction and pleasure. Yet the joy in these things only lasts but for a moment. This godless world that does not fear God and rejects his Son and loves all that is evil is much like the same world that Paul writes to in Ephesus, only at a different point in history. And Paul is writing to the people in Ephesus, reminding them of the infinite riches that they have in Christ. Christ, uh, They started out in verse 3 in chapter 1. Paul begins his outburst of praise to the Father, saying, He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And these verses from verse 3 to 14 It's one long sentence in the original Greek with no full stops, no commas. It is an overflowing song of thanksgiving and an outburst of praise to the Trinitarian God who has accomplished salvation. And it is a great work of a Trinitarian God that was planned in eternity past. This great work of salvation is certainly worth celebrating and this is Paul's point here. He wants us to celebrate and to be encouraged and to rejoice in all that Christ has done. For this uh, plan was planned in eternity past. God the Father chose us in eternity past. He brought our adoption. He made us acceptable in verses 4 to 6. The Son we see in verses 7 to 12, that in him we have redemption, forgiveness of sins, much grace spiritual wisdom and an inheritance that is beyond measure. And the Holy Spirit we see in verse 13 to 14, he seals us and guarantees that inheritance, applying all that Christ did to those who believe. Now in the next section we see in verse 15 to 23 in chapter 1, we're just leading up to get a background to our text. We see Paul earnestly praying and asking God that the eyes of the believers be opened to understand the infinite riches that they have in Christ and that they may know that the same power that worked to raise Christ from the dead is also working in them and is working in us here today if we belong to him. I wonder how many Christians often consider in their spare time just how truly richly blessed we are I wonder if we often realise the great power that raised Christ from the dead is actually working in us who believe. 
we see in God's perfect wisdom that he chose in eternity past those whom he will call his own, who he will bless with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And as we move to chapter 2, we see the unwrapping and the application of this great work of salvation that was planned in eternity past. It was planned in a particular it was p- planned to be applied in a particular point in time, and that is in the new birth. And it is this particular point in time that I would like us to consider today as we consider chapter 2, verse 5, and we see God bring to life that which was at one time spiritually dead, and we consider the grace of God that so powerfully works to save. As Calvin put it, this grace brings us from the lowest places of the pit only to raise us up into the highest places in the heavenlies seated with Christ. So let us begin to read chapter 2 in verse 1 as we lead up to verse 5, which we will look at. And it reads this, As as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of the flesh and following the desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of his great love which which he loved us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. And this is the main big picture, is that we have been saved by grace. And you can see God's grace so richly in the new birth of a believer. Let us have a look at this verse, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Certainly we have looked at briefly some of the eternal riches that God chose to pour out on a particular people at a particular time. But we can see that there's a difficulty. I mean, how do all these riches that belong to Christ and are poured out from heaven come to be in the possession of someone who is by birth corrupted by sin and characterized by disobedience and an enemy of God? and in total separation from him who was the creator of heaven and earth. We are talking about from rags to riches on a scale that can't be measured. How does someone in the state that we read in verse 1 to 3 come to be in the possession of such infinite riches in Christ? First, let's look at the first part of the verse, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. As we consider this verse, we see there is new life brought to a person at a particular point in time as part of God's perfect plan of salvation that brings them out of the state which was described in the first three verses in order that they may be saved. As Jesus put it in John 3.3, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And again in verse 5-6 to he says, Very truly I tell you, No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and of the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. So the first point I would like us to look at 
is the necessity of new life. As in the beginning of verse 5, it tells us, He made us alive. But why was it necessary that He made us alive? As we read in uh, the first three verses of this chapter and many other verses throughout Scripture, in particular Romans 3 verse 10 to 18, we find that man by nature is not only dead in trespasses and sins, he's not only alienated from God and unable to see the kingdom of God, but Scripture tells us that man does not understand God, nor does he seek him. The Bible tells us that men are altogether unrighteous, unprofitable, unwilling and unable to come to God. Man loves sin and passionately pursues it by nature and is self-centred, carnally minded, with a heart that is deceitfully wicked and enslaved to sin, walking in the course of this godless world and being influenced and energised by Satan himself, as we just read. He has no ability to do good, for he himself is not good, but man by nature is marked with rebellion and disobedience. He has no fear of God in him, but there is only the desire to fulfill the lusts of the flesh and the lust of the mind. Scripture describes man's throat as an open tomb that reveals his rotting and decaying heart that is stained with sin, which is the mark of all man. And this testifies that we, by nature, are children of wrath. Just as it says in verse 3. The scripture tells us that man in the flesh cannot please God and cannot come to Christ for he is both unwilling and unable being spiritually dead. Not only is man in this state separated from God, but he is hostile towards God and his enemy. Every part of man wages war against God through their willingness to sin. Rejecting and rebelling against God who knows and sees all things. Nothing is hidden from God. For one day all men will be accountable to him. And God is angry and hostile towards man for their sin is ultimately against him. And he is waiting for the appointed time to pour out his wrath on all who have sinned against him. Because it is against him. Yet all those who flee to Christ will be saved, for he is a refuge and a place of safety. And anyone who runs to Christ shall be saved. All those who seek him. But there's a problem. Man is not willing to come to him, for they are blinded by their sin, as Jesus said in John 3, verse 19 to 20. This is the verdict. Jesus has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come to the light. Man by nature indeed loves sin and is led astray by their rebellious hearts. Surely by now we have seen the necessity for the new birth. And believe me, uh, there is much, much more to be said. But I don't want to depress you. But man, if he was left in this state, he would perish, for he is rotten to the core, and every part of man is grievously affected by sin, and there is a desperate need for change, and that change must come from outside of himself, and that change must be from someone that is more powerful than all of the forces of darkness and sin that have left men spiritually dead and unable to come to Christ and be saved. So the question remains, how can a man turn from his sin when he loves it so much? 
And why would he turn to the one that will prohibit him or stop him from doing the things which he loves? That's why Jesus said, you must be born again. One theologian remarks, free will without God's grace is not free will at all, but it is a permanent prisoner and bond slave of evil since it cannot itself turn to do good. Which brings us to our next point. Now that we have seen the need for the new birth, let us look at the supernatural work of the new birth. As we look at this verse again, we read, He made us alive with Christ. The Greek word sin is a poison. I think I got that right. Translated making alive together. This act of being made alive is so often overlooked in God's work of redemption. Yet Paul, in his exaltation of God's grace in salvation, he highlights this fact, that we were once dead in trespasses and sins, but he made us alive. This making alive is a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit that comes like a rushing wind from heaven. It cleanses and washes the soul that was dead in trespasses and sins and drives out all that is offensive to God, removing the heart of stone that resists and rejects God and replaces it with a new heart and a new spirit whereby he is convinced and convicted of their sin. So when someone is born again, they understand for the first time that they were dead in sin, they were storing up wrath and they were an enemy of God. But being made alive has brought sight to the blind and life to that which was dead. Being made alive has brought ears to those who were deaf. And now these ears hear the gospel of Christ. And these eyes can see the magnificence of Christ. And the new life that was given to them causes them to forsake their sins and abandon themselves to run to Christ and be saved. For he is a refuge and a rock and a defence to all who come to him. Faith is the first breath that the new birth breathes. I remember when my daughter Kadisha was born. I think it paints a good picture of the new birth because when Kadisha was born, it seemed so quick. It was it was a marvelous thing. And as soon as she was born, this big old nurse who was quite rough, but she was uh, certainly knew what she was doing. As soon as Kadisha was born. The very moment it seemed that she came out of the womb, she was placed straight into that place of comfort, that refuge, the mother's breast, the place of safety, the place where the baby by nature longs to be. And this is the same with the new birth. When someone is born again, the first place they run to is Christ, that place of safety, that place where they long to be. The new birth is not a moral reformation whereby one changes their lifestyle or habits. It is not where someone stops doing a particular thing and starts doing something else. It is not choosing to go to church or deciding to participate in church activities. It's not choosing to become a missionary or helping other people or learning the Bible properly. For although all these things can be a sign of the new birth, they can also be done by those who are unregenerate, as we see in Matthew 7, verse 22 and 23 where Jesus says, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and drive out demons in your name and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. 
Being made alive is being a new creature and a new creature has new affections and new desires and hates sin, although not free from sin, but hungers and thirsts for righteousness, abandoning self and looking to Christ and Christ alone, wholeheartedly loving all that is true with a uh, desire to deny self, seeking only to please the one true God who has so graciously saved them. This is marks of the new birth. It is God's grace and his grace alone that saves us and makes us alive. And this is why we see at the end of the verse, Paul cannot help to actually say what he has been describing since the beginning of chapter 1. It is by grace you have been saved. When you look at the state of man, he made them alive. He can't help but to say, it's by grace you've been saved. So much grace was shown in the new birth. This declaration of God's grace in reversing the condition from bondage to sin to being seated in the heavenly places, the highest place with Christ, is something worth celebrating. For this change that taken place is so great that it's even noticeable here in our life today. Let us contrast quickly what we read in the description of man's condition in the first three verses of Ephesians 2 with the effects described of the condition of the man who has been born of God in John chapter 1. Now I'll read it for you and just summarize. In Ephesians 2, 3, it says that man by nature gratify the cravings of their flesh and follow its desires and thoughts. But first John in chapter 2, verse 29, says, You know that everyone who does what is right has been born of God. You see the contrast? In Ephesians 2, verse 1 to 3, it describes man as being dead in sin and characterized by disobedience. In 1 John 3, 9, it says, No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. That is to say that those who have been born of God do not live lives that are characterized by habitual sinning. Once again, there's another great contrast. Ephesians 2.3 describes man as a slave to one's own sinful affections, communicating that they only love themselves. Whereas 1 John 4, 7 says, Dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God. Everyone who has been born of God loves. So we see the contrast in the new birth and the difference it makes here on earth. Ephesians 2, 1 describes man as spiritually dead and alienated, separated from God. Whereas 1 John 5, 1 says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is Christ, is born of God. Those that are born of God believe in Jesus and are no longer alienated from God but reconciled to him. Ephesians 2.2 describes the natural man as a slave to the system of the world. Whereas 1 John 5.4 says, everyone born of God overcomes the world. See the contrast? And one more in Ephesians 2, 2, it it describes man as by nature being influenced and energized by Satan. Whereas 1 John 5, 18 says of those that have been born again, it says, 
We know that anyone born of God does not continue in sin. The one who was born of God keeps them safe. And the evil one cannot harm them. So there's a big difference between being controlled and energized and influenced by Satan as to not being touched by him. Regeneration is an inward work produced supernaturally by the Holy Spirit, making one a new creature. Let us read in Ezekiel 36 once again, verse 24 to 27, just to get a picture of this supernatural act of being made alive, so we can better understand why Paul makes the point of this verse at the end by saying, it is by grace you have been saved. Because in this passage, you will see God's initiative and God's act to save by grace alone. This act, and this is shown to us by the words that you hear over and over again in this passage, I will, I will, I will. Let us read starting in verse 24. For I will take you out of the nations, I will gather you from all the countries, and bring you back to your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees, and you will be careful to keep my laws." In this passage and everywhere else in scripture, it is clear, just as Jonah said, salvation is of the Lord. Which brings us to our third and final point, which is that the new birth is a monogistic in nature, which is to say that it is the working of one. God is the one who makes alive. Just as it is clearly said in our text, he made us alive. And the fact that it was him and him alone is adding to the cause of why Paul outbursts out and says, it, has, it is by grace you've been saved, because he alone made us alive. Salvation, as we see in Ephesians 1, starts in eternity past with election. And election is the very heart of grace. For if God chose in eternity past, it cannot be based on the merits of man. And all throughout verse 3 to 14, we see in chapter 1 that salvation is by grace and is given to us in Christ. It is God who chooses, God who predestines and adopts for his pleasure and according to his will, and it is to the praise of his glorious grace. For in him we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. Because of his grace, he gave us wisdom and understanding. He revealed to us his will. For he purposed and it it pleased him, because in him we are chosen according to his plan for the purpose of his will and for his glory alone. He marks us, he seals us, he guarantees us our inheritance and hope of glory. Salvation is a supernatural act of God and God alone. And Paul continues to show us that it is by grace you have been saved by showing us our helpless condition in verse 1 to 3 in chapter 2. And that because of God's great love, here's the motivation, God's great love and God's rich mercy in verse 4. And because of his grace in verse 5 and 8 and according to his kindness in verse 7. 
Just as James 1 verse 18 puts it, He chose to give us birth through the word of truth. And 1 Peter 1.3 says, Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope. And this verse I think is, is clearest of all in John chapter 1 verse 12 to 13. It says this, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So who were the children of God? Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. Salvation is a supernatural act of God, friends, and I think it's something that we can be encouraged and rejoice in knowing that we are in good hands. This has been planned in eternity past and every single detail is planned by the God who created the heavens and the earth. And many might say, well, if God is the one who saves, then why should we pray and why should we evangelize? And this is the objective uh, the objection that I so often hear. But those of us who believe what the Bible tells about salvation and about the sovereignty of God know that, yes, we cannot rebirth someone. But for someone to be saved, they must hear the gospel because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So of all people, we should be the most zealous in evangelism because we know that every time we preach the gospel with that brother, with that sister, with that person at work, with that person down the street, they very well may get saved. So when we understand that the gospel and the preaching of the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, it should ignite our hearts to go out and just to preach to anyone and everyone, knowing that at the end of my gospel presentation, another might be welcomed into the kingdom of heaven. We just don't know. And prayer is another thing. Prayer is a means which God has ordained to uh, accomplish his will on earth. And when we acknowledge and know this, we should be the most zealous people to pray knowing that God hears our prayers and answers our prayers and accomplishes his will even through our prayers. When we come to an understanding and know this, it should fire us up to want to pray. Pray for our children's salvation. Pray for our lost brothers and sisters. Pray for all those in our surrounding community because God may very well use that prayer to work and to bring about someone's salvation. So I encourage all of us here today to be people that are bold and ready to go out there and to step out of our comfort zones and to be zealous in evangelism and to be zealous and committed to praying for these other means which by God has ordained to accomplish his will. Friends, today as we look at this one verse that is full of grace, full of God's grace, when we see it, that he made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. All the riches of God's grace has brought us out of our spiritual deadness and breathed life into us. We now have eyes to see and ears that hear and life that is eternal. So as we consider the rich grace 
that has been shown to us may compel us to serve God zealously. May we pursue holiness and consciously, actively kill sin and flee from temptation, denying ourselves daily so that we may give ourselves as a living sacrifice to God. Let us love one another and serve one another, and in view of God's grace shown towards us, let us be gracious towards one another. There's always esteeming others more important than ourselves, for so much grace has been shown to us. When we consider that he made us alive together with Christ, may we, above all things, see Christ as precious, that we may express our love towards him in pure obedience to his word. May we be zealous in prayer and zealous students of his word. May we be zealous in evangelism and, and our love for the lost so that every part of our being will strive and willingly submit to the truth of scripture so that our lives will be a song of praise to God who has so graciously saved us and made us alive and allowed us to enjoy the eternal riches that Christ himself possesses. Let us pray. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. And we thank you so much, Lord, that you are so rich in grace, full of mercy and compassion, Lord, and so kind towards us who are your people, Lord. Father, we ask that you remind us daily of your goodness, that it may be the meditation of our hearts, that it may compel us to go that extra mile, to take up our cross, to persevere and to serve you zealously, Lord. Father, we are a weak and fragile people, but we look to you and we trust in you, Lord. May you help us to grow and mature in the faith, that we may bring glory to your name. And Father, we ask this through Christ's name. Amen.